This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we have two interviews. First, a woman who dreamt of flying and sacrificed a lot to reach that goal, eventually becoming a pilot on the Boeing 777. Then, a Marine MV-22 pilot in training from Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Training Squadron 204. In the news, the DOT wants to see action from the airlines. An Apple AirTag takes law enforcement to a bag thief. Two pilots reportedly fell asleep and overflew the runway. And a seaplane service expands in the eastern United States. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 713 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. And part-time TV producer this week. Yeah, we'll find out more about that coming up. We'll talk about that later. Yes. I'm looking forward to a really good conversation tonight. Also joining us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Hey, good evening to everybody far and wide, and uh, I'm just glad that we have Micah tonight because uh, I don't know what I would do if I didn't get to see that ugly old beat-up, dirty Gulfstream hat that he wears all the time. <laughs> Welcome, Micah. <laughs> hey, Rob, it's great to see you. And at least you didn't say anything about my ugly, old, beat-up, dirty face. No, no, no. <laughs> I, would never, I would never get personal. All right. Max Trescott is off this week. What's he doing? Is he flying somebody somewhere? I, I have no idea. In fact, he called me a couple hours ago, and he didn't leave a message, and I forgot to call him back. So I have no idea what he's up to. Uh, I think he went down to uh, the Sears Delivery Center to pick up a, a new vision jet with a, uh, a customer and that then fly it back to the right. West Coast. Yeah. Tough job he's got, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's strenuous to be cruising at 37,000, 38,000 feet and just watching the world go by. I mean, the stress of trying to ensure that the, the FMS is checking off the, the waypoints accurately and that, you're not going to run out of fuel. Uh, it, it, it's very stressful. Well, our guest tonight is going to be able to tell us all about that. Quite, yes. And our guest is Tammy Weta Hoyer. Now, her story is of an insurance claims adjuster who went to flight school. She left her job to become a flight instructor, lived frugally to pay off her debt, got furloughed, flew charter, eventually was hired as a commercial pilot, and now flies the Boeing 777 for a major U.S. airline. So, Tammy, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Hi. Good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm excited now, to be here. Now, I just here. gave the abbreviated version. Tammy's full story is quite interesting and is an example of working hard, giving up a lot, and achieving that lifelong goal. And then there's a marriage and a baby, I think, in the mix as well. So <laughs> coming up, we're going to find out how she did it. But first, we've got some aviation news from the past week to talk about. Is everyone ready? Yeah. Mainly ready up here in Portland. Oh, ready here wherever I am. 
The first story comes from the AP. Buttigieg warns airlines to help travelers or face new regulations. Uh, Micah, I guess uh, Secretary Pete is uh, wanting the airlines to step up when it comes to flight cancellations and delays. Yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting because, you know, we've had flight cancellations and delays going on and off with the airlines not taking responsibility of it for, I don't know, how long have there been airlines? But all of a sudden, it seems like because they've increased due to all the issues that we've seen this summer, that politics is taking a, a role in saying, well, we need to do something differently and we need to make you responsible for the delays that you are responsible for. And the airlines, of course, are saying... We're not responsible. Really, we're doing everything that we can. But it's a race to the bottom, and typically the airlines treat customers as, well, the last class of service. So I think Tammy will have something to say about that. But (laughs) what the DOT did is sent letters to the CEOs of uh, 10 United States Airlines. I didn't know there were 10. I know. Well— I think I think there's regional airlines included oh. in this, as opposed to just the just the majors. I mean, there must be since there's ten of them. And as as we know, the Department of Transportation recently proposed rules for refunds for passengers who fly, whose flights are canceled or rescheduled. And the uh, the DOT is asking for, as we've mentioned, is asking for public input. But Buttigieg in this letter says that the department is considering additional rules, and this is a quote, that would further expand the rights of airline passengers who experienced disruptions. Uh, Tammy, have you been seeing lots of flight cancellations and delays on on your side? And kind of what's the inside the cockpit view of all of this? I mean, we as pilots don't like to have cancellations or delays any more than passengers do. I mean, you know, we have a set schedule and I mean, I hate to say it, but there's a certain point we know we're going home and having a delay just makes us more delayed. So, and and, I mean, we know where our money is coming from. Basically, our salaries are paid by passengers who are paying to fly on board our aircraft. So the last thing that any of us want to see really are are people who are upset or have delays. I mean, it's, you know, because we're flying, we, you know, we, we're also passengers at some point too, and it's not fun. And let me just say, Max and Tammy, you know, I've flown regularly on on the airline for whom you fly. And whenever I'm on board, the flight crew and the cabin crew treat me with respect. They're wonderful people. And always, as, as our listeners know, I give them all gifts. I bring on gifts for everybody on board because I think it's important because you guys work incredibly, incredibly hard. And I've never had an issue on an aircraft. But before and after, that's where the issues always take place. Yes, unfortunately, um, you know, we have gate agents and ramp agents. And there's a lot of people that have to work together to make that flight go. And and just like in every profession, you have your bad eggs. And unfortunately, when they're bad, it shadows everybody else who's doing a good job. And that's what you remember is the bad stuff, not the person that tried to help you. And it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I feel bad for... HR who tries to manage all that because it's, you know, especially those gate agents, I, I couldn't do their job. I mean, especially when you you have legitimate weather issues and you know you're going to either cancel or delay, you now have like, in my instance, 300 people that are staring at you, you know, wanting you to solve their problems. So I don't know that there's enough money in the world that I would do that job for. So, Well, and, and you know, you make an interesting point, I think, Tammy, because the, the, the pilots – 
the flight attendants, uh, the technicians, the uh, the ramp agents, uh, the uh, gate agents. You are the first line of defense uh, for an airline, and I I mean. I, I guess I shouldn't use the word defense, but you're the first line of contact often with customers. And you are the ones that are to blame for whatever the situation is, even though if they thought about it for half a second, they'd realize it's it's not your fault. Um, but again, that letter that, that Buttigieg sent wasn't to the pilots or the flight attendants or the mechanics or the, or the ramp rats. It, it went to... It went to the airline CEOs because the CEOs are lucky enough to have all of these employees, uh, you know, uh, standing as a as a sort of a uh, a wall between them and and the actual paying passengers that keep the airline going. And and it's it's just these, uh, you know, pilots always know how to fix everything. At least the years I flew, I always remember that we knew the answers to all the problems in the world. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the management just, there's something about them, I don't know. I mean, they, they just seem to go to, sometimes they just seem to have graduated from stupid school. You know, and, they, and they do the one thing that they know is just going to irritate passengers and employees the most. Um, so, you know, Pete's idea, eh, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But, you know, that's the difference between, a, uh, you know, a, a, this current administration in the White House and a, a White House made up of, say, people from the previous president's party. And they just see things diametrically differently about what government should do or should not do. So, well, I, I mean, I understand. I, you know, back in the day when I flew a regional airline, I, I flew out of JFK, and there was a certain time that you knew if you were pushing back, you were going to sit in a line of literally 45 planes. I mean, you would just be shutting down, and sometimes you'd have to taxi back because you were waiting four or five hours to take off. So because of government intervention, we now have the rule that if passengers are on a plane for more than a certain amount of time, they have to they have to be allowed to egress. And I, I listen, I think that's a great idea. I don't, I don't think it's healthy for anybody to be stuck in a tube sitting on a taxiway for three hours. Um, as far as what, um, Pete is, is proposing, I, I, you know, honestly, I don't know the exact details. I don't have any problem with airlines being held accountable for certain things, but the flying public generally has to understand that things like weather are just beyond everybody's abilities, you know, and, and I, I'll get the, well, it's fine here. Yeah. Right. I understand that, but we have to fly somewhere to get you, you know, it, it's just like, and, and, you know, not to put anybody down. I mean, if you're a pilot that if you're not a pilot, that's not what you're thinking. Um, but I think tensions are high. I think airlines in general are short staffed. I think people have been cooped up from being on lockdown and COVID. And I think the combination of it all is creating a lot of, uh, anarchy yeah. I hate to people say. are on edge to a certain extent yes yes yeah. yes anxiety um, yeah. yes well yes. but you know sure. as micah said before this is not new uh this whole delay thing but why do we need a government agency to create rules to tell an airline that come on when it's your fault the airplane breaks down the crew times out whatever Chimney Christmas. It's ten thirty at night. You've got to do something for these people in the in the terminal at LaGuardia. 
You can't just say, oh, well, that's the way it goes, guys. I think there's uh, what's going on right now and what Rob was alluding to is that unfortunately, uh, societally and corporately, there is a, uh, a culture of a lack of customer service. And that's why it's all of a sudden gotten to the government where nobody takes responsibility for the situations that they create as opposed to the situations that are created for them. And I don't think at least I hope that uh, uh, that Secretary Pete is not talking about weather delays and ATC delays that are beyond the control of the airline, but are talking about things within the airline's control. And there was a time when the airlines did take responsibility for those things. But there was also a time when passengers would ask for them nicely as opposed to start yelling and screaming from the moment that it happened. So it goes both ways. Well, you also have to look at, you know, maybe what 10 15 years ago you were spending a few hundred dollars at least and and back then that was that's a large sum of money nowadays on certain you know low cost carriers you're paying $20 a leg and it goes hand in hand i totally agree that you know what those are our customers and we need to treat them with respect and courtesy but at the same time when you're paying $40 for a round trip airfare how much profit do you think that airline is making that they can go ahead and supply hotel rooms and meals for everybody. I mean, you, you kind of have to think of it like as it goes hand in hand, you know, I, I mean, and, and not to say that people don't deserve to be treated well, but I can still treat you with respect and be kind and just say, I'm sorry, sir, we, we can't provide a hotel for you. You know, I mean. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Th- that's the nice thing about, uh, about airline fares is that the people in the front end of the airplane in first class are often just as late as the people in the back end of the economy <laughs> that paid that $40 a leg. Um, although I haven't seen any, maybe you travel in different circles, but I, I'm here in Chicago and I haven't seen a whole lot of $40 legs to anywhere. I mean, but that's just me. I, I don't get out much anymore. <laughs> uh, we, we need to move along. But one more thing from uh, Pete Buttigieg's letter to the airlines is an announcement that before Labor Day, the Department of Transportation is going to launch a new interactive dashboard that will let customers see what each airline offers in the event of a delay or a cancellation. Oh, that's just lovely. We're going we're gonna to implement something right over a holiday weekend. Brilliant. Yes. So... In the letter, which which I haven't seen, but which uh, we see from uh, The Hill, there's a quote says, The department is creating an interactive dashboard that provides air travelers with a single venue where they can locate easy-to-read, comparative summary information on the services or amenities that each of the large U.S. airlines provide when the cause of a cancellation or delay was due to circumstances within the airline's control. So I take that to mean that what the, the DOT is going to do is is collect the stated policy information uh, for that uh, situation from each of the airlines and just consolidate them all in, in one location. So we can, we can look for the announcement as to uh, the, uh, the address for that dashboard, hopefully soon, I guess, before Labor Day. All right, moving on. From NBC, we see this uh, air tag leads to arrest of airline worker accused of stealing at least $15,000 worth of items from luggage. And we've talked about the 
the, the fact that many travelers are using these Apple AirTags in their luggage as a way to uh, locate their luggage should it go missing. And so uh, this is a 19-year-old apparently who has uh, been charged with two counts of grand theft. And the way it was uh, discovered, it was kind of interesting. Two travelers reported missing luggage, and one of them had an Apple AirTag inside her bag, which indicated the location of the device. So law enforcement arrived at the residence, and they found the missing bag of the other passenger and just the AirTag that was owned by the uh, the the person that had put that in her bag. But, I mean, this is kind of nice. 19-year-old kid, I don't know, you know, it sounds like sort of simple theft rather than some kind of, you know, organized uh, activity. But they've, they found the guy and he's been charged. You know, the thing I never understood about these kinds of thefts is that if the guy is working in baggage or wherever, how did he know which bag to go after in order to, to reap the best, I mean, the benefits? I mean, does he judge the quality of the luggage or... Uh, the tag, or how did he know there was anything cool inside those bags? The leather one with the gold trim. Yeah. Oh, that might have done it. Okay. Also, pelican cases. I told the story. This That's was true. Quite a while ago, where my bag never showed up at the carousel, and so when I went to the, uh, you know, the agent to say, you know, my bag didn't show up, when I described it as a pelican case, they had it behind the counter there, and they said they never put. You know, bags like that, pelican cases or, you know, bags of that sort out on the carousel because those are the first ones to get picked up by somebody who doesn't own the bag. There is uh, something that the DOT publishes each month. It's called the Air Travel Consumer Report, and it lists many, many uh, statistics, including mishandled baggage, but also flight delays and consumer complaints customer service reports to Department of Homeland Security, even animal incident reports from the airlines. And it comes out monthly. And I I pulled up the, uh, the report from the last month that's available now, which is the July 2022 report. And it has some interesting statistics about mishandled bags. And the airlines that in May... Um, had the lowest percentage of bags mishandled. They show this as mis- a number of mishandled bags per 100 and planed. And the best airlines, those who lost the least percentage of bags, were Allegiant Air, Hawaiian Airlines, Frontier Airlines, and Southwest. And Southwest being fourth from the best um, is kind of interesting because okay. they, ha- they have almost— I was Oh, I was going to say, those are the ones where everyone's carrying the airplane bags on the airplane. Actually, it's the opposite. Southwest, what I was going to say was, Southwest has almost twice as many bags <clears throat> implained as any of the other airlines. <clears throat> Two bags fly free on Southwest. Yeah. So Southwest had, in May, had 10 million, 10.7 million bags implained. Allegiant Air had half a million, Hawaiian about the same, Frontier 800,000. So that's on the good end of the scale. So obviously what people want to know is who, who are the worst airlines? 
the worst airline is Republic Airways. Now, their percentage mishandled is 0.93%. So that's less than 1%. So the numbers are really low. Elysian Air is 0.15%, so significantly uh, lower percentage, but in all cases, pretty low numbers. But anyway, Republic Airlines uh, Airways is the worst. Uh, second worst is American Airlines, then Envoy Air, JetBlue, PSA, Alaska, United, and um, down the line. There's 17 airlines here. So if you're interested in you know statistics like this, data like this, this uh, monthly report from the DOT has tons and tons of information. You can just really dig into it if you like. That's a hell of a lot of luggage. It is. That sort of makes sense. I've known a couple of Republic pilots, and you do too, and they were always seemed a little shady. <laughs> oh, okay, that'll be worth a few letters, uh, emails. Uh, I love you guys. You know who I'm talking about. Um, what, what's our uh, What's our uh, email again, Max? Uh, I am that... really offended at yahoo.com. Brian yeah. will get it and pass it on. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Micah, we have in the uh, Aviation Herald – uh, an example of an Ethiopian flight that, uh, well, reportedly the the pilots kind of encountered some kind of difficulty. What's the background here? Well, it was uh, an Ethiopian flight to uh, Abu Adada, Addis Ababa. I never pronounced that right the first time. And, uh, Addis Ababa, I think it is. Addis Ababa? I believe so. Addis Ababa. I'm just looking at it. Okay, and they were en route, uh, at, uh, and uh, when the pilots apparently fell asleep and continued past the top of their descent, maintaining flight level 370, and continued along the FMC route, set up for an approach to runway 25 left without descending, and uh, they turned around and made it back okay, but it seems that they uh, may have fallen asleep in the air, both the first officer and the captain. That doesn't sound like a good thing. I, I, you know, we talked about this last night uh, on a different program, and I, I had a little heartburn with even talking about it, only because we, there's so very little that we know about this uh, incident. Uh, we don't actually know that the two pilots fell asleep. We just know that they they lost communication with uh, air traffic, and uh, uh, so. Maybe their headsets both went bad at exactly the same time. It could have happened. Uh, no, seriously, but it, it was a middle-of-the-night flight, uh, and and that's always, uh, you know, suspicious when it comes to fatigue. But again, what was their duty day like up until this incident? Was this their first leg of the night of the day? Uh, was it their... Fifth, uh, you know, because the, the trip itself was fairly short. It was only 200 miles. Uh, but apparently it, uh, you know, when, when you're really sleepy, it doesn't take much in cruise to go, okay, nighty night. Uh, and that's possible. But we just don't know enough at this point. I would say that it, looking through the, uh, the reader comments under this article, a lot oh, of yeah. them are very suspicious that uh, the sleeping is uh, what actually happened. It, and it's what, to your point, Rob, that we just don't know. But one of the best responses came from a guy named Gary Glitter. Sure. Oh, I saw that. Who said, who is to say they were sleeping? 
They could have been embraced in some sort of passionate moment, kissing and cuddling. Blaming it on sleeping is not 2022 and ignorant. Way to go, Gary. So anyway, um, yeah, I I agree that there is an investigation um, underway. Both pilots have been suspended, uh, meanwhile, and... I guess we just have to wait and see what uh, what the investigation reveals. Uh, another item. Um, this is Harry's from Pat. Going to chime in on this, huh? You know, being Ethiopian Air, I you know I don't know. They don't have as strict regulations as we do in the United States. So who knows if they were on duty? Who knows what their their you know. Maybe they had to, they just sat at the airport for three hours waiting for their next leg, uh, you know. But it, it's tough. Those those um, red eye flights are tough. You're especially if you're tired, you know. It's dark. The hum, hum of the engines, and you know you gotta you gotta make a conscious effort to uh, to drink some coffee and turn the lights on. Well, but you know, as Gary said, they might have been involved in a romantic embrace and just gotten distracted could have i mean if we're talking about a harlequin romance novel sure absolutely <laughs> but i can tell you in my 20 plus years that has never once happened to me so <laughs> which the falling asleep or the passionate embrace either either <laughs> I just wanted either. to be clear. I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Moving right along from PaxX.Arrow. Tailwind launches DC-ish semi-seaplane service from New York City. So tail, uh, Tailwind Air flies uh, seaplane service in the Northeast, and they just announced a nonstop seaplane service from Manhattan's Skyport Marina to Washington, D.C.'s College Park Airport. CGS. Flights are approximately 80 to 90 minutes, I guess. Scheduled service begins September 13th this year, and this will be with a fleet of Cessna Grand Caravans. So uh, from the uh, from the Manhattan Skyport, that's taking off from the water. That's why it says semi-seaplane service in the, in the title. And landing at uh, the airport, College Park Airport, uh, outside of D.C., close to D.C., uh, is uh, is on the runway. What they'd like to be able to do eventually is land on the Potomac and make it strictly a seaplane all around kind of a uh, kind of a flight. But I guess they note that landing a plane on the Potomac right next to Washington D.C. is something that takes a little bit of coordination and and more than a few approvals. I'm sure. Well, I, I can't imagine it's easier doing it from New York Harbor. Well, but that's established. That's an established seaplane base. Skyport Marina is right on the east end of 23rd Street, which, by the way, 23rd Street is the origin of the terms 23 skidoo, but that's a side note. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, But in any event, so it's right downtown and, and very easy to get to if you're working in Manhattan, and they have service that goes up to Boston, out to Provincetown, and all over. Uh, but they could not get the restrictions lifted to be able to land in the Potomac because of all the controlled airspace there. So they're heading to College Park, which is uh, without traffic, about 30 minutes from Union Station in downtown D.C. Uh, it is certainly maybe a little closer. Well, I don't know, maybe about the same as going to Reagan. Uh, but uh, they're flying it on, on float planes and uh, and the float planes have wheels so they can also uh, land on a, on the runway. So they're focused mostly on business travel. Their schedule has, has got morning and afternoon 
departures. Uh, fares start at $395 each way. Uh, so they're not the cheapest out there, but I think that's not the market they're they're going after. The uh, the planes, the, the Cessna Grand Caravans have eight economy plus leather seats. And so everybody gets, uh, uh, you know, a nice uh, flight with a small group. And they're also running a promotion, a buy one seat, get a, compa- a companion flies with you for free, buy one, get one kind of a thing. So uh, you can find, uh, you can learn more about that at flytailwind.com. Oh. I didn't know what BOGO was. <laughs> you never knew what BOGO was? <laughs> no, I never heard that before. Yeah, that's buy one, oh, get one. Oh, my gosh. All right, I'm sorry. I don't get around. But seriously, I know somebody that flies for these guys, and uh, and he loves it. And when he detailed one of his departures, or is it a departure? I can't remember if it was a departure or an arrival into uh, uh, the, the New York area. It sounded... So cool because, okay, we we take off here, then we've got to stay at this altitude to duck under the Class uh, B or the Class C from LaGuardia, and then we can climb up here, but we've got to stay under the Class B from, you know, the New York area, and and, and then we're landing. And I went, jeez. And and it's one guy or one pilot, I should say. So when the weather is crummy, they're kind of busy, but... uh, Maybe we can have him on as a guest sometime, and he could take us through uh, one of his his flights. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Or something, but uh, yeah. I think it's kind of a cool uh, cool idea. The Manhattan location is kind of their hub. They also fly to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I think about four locations out on Long Island, uh, out at the end. Also, uh, Provincetown, Plymouth, Massachusetts, Boston Harbor. So they have um, kind of a, a vision This is a quote from their, I think from their website. Uh, We are excited about our future and want to be the go-to solution for intercity urban air mobility in the Northeast Corridor and beyond. In the not-so-distant future, we aim to be one of the first adopters of upcoming hybrid and electric aircraft. So, uh, interesting company. David, um, I thought uh, College Park, Maryland was near... Andrews, is it not? No, College Park is on the north side of the Beltway. It's literally um, where where I ninety five splits into the Beltway on the north side of the city is where College Park is. College Park is the oh. oldest air continuously run airfield in the United States, um, and it, it's um, got a museum there, and it's a small. Business airport, a caravan's probably big for it. They're not going to get any sort of biz jets in there, but there is a College Park station. It's right next to the airport that gets them is on the metro, the red line. So you can fly from New York, fly to College Park, visit the College Park Museum, then get on the metro train and go down to the Smithsonian. Sounds like a great trip. Robert, Tammy, do either of you have your seaplane rating? I don't. I, yeah, I do. I was curious, you know, if you would be landing that float plane uh, on, you know, coming in on a runway, I can't imagine what the flare would be like because it's got to be so tough to be those long floats under you. I, I just can't imagine what that would, how that would be. Oh, oh taxiing alone, the first time I, I, I had a, an opportunity to fly with some guys down in uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, out of Fort Lauderdale towards the uh, uh, Caribbean that were operating uh, caravans. 
and just climbing into the the seat of a caravan, you're, you're climbing up, I don't know, 12, 12 feet or something to get into the airplane. Uh, but taxiing around, it was like it was like walking on stilts. It was really cool, and uh, but it is hard to judge distance. Uh, well, Tammy knows, you know, when you get out of a little airplane and you hop into the uh, the seat of a triple seven, you're way higher above the ground uh, than, uh, than than a little guy. Uh, but but a, a seaplane is is something really unique, um, and I, I think it's I think it's really cool though. That's why we've got to have uh, uh, this guy on. He'd be fun. Yeah, it, they are fun. I encourage anybody who has an opportunity to go for a seaplane ride to do it. It's definitely something that needs to be part of your aviation experience. Can we properly use proper terms? It's not a seaplane. I know. It's a float plane. It's a float plane. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're, and it's an amphibian, right? Yes. Technically, it's right. It's an amphibian. If it, But they are not landing in the water. They are landing on floats. So there is a difference. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Okay. You're right. All right, we want to talk to uh, Tammy about her uh, uh, adventures on the way from uh, starting out as a student of accounting. When you graduated, Tammy, you were graduated from college. You you were working as a claims adjuster for an insurance company. Yes, but you'd al- always had an interest in aviation. Yeah, I always did. My parents, when I was a child, we would go to Miami International and just watch the planes and. You know, it was just always something that I loved and enjoyed, but it just never occurred to me that it was something that I could pursue. Um, and while I was working as a claims adjuster, a good friend of mine, her mother was a captain for Southwest Airlines. And every time I'd see her, I'd, I'd ask her a thousand questions. And she finally was, you know, was always so gracious and answering all my questions and just placating me. And I, I mean, just I, I would spend tons of time talking to her. And so she finally encouraged me to just go do what's called a discovery flight, um, which is just to check it out and see if I liked it. So I, this is back in South Florida. I, I did, and I was totally hooked. What kind of questions, Tammy, did did you ask her? I mean, what kind of ask did you ask her about being a pilot or about the airplane? What were you interested in at that age, at that point? I was interested in, in the airplane because she, she absolutely loved the 737. Um, I wanted to know, you know, just simple things like, oh, well, how fast do you have to be when you take off? And, you know, and, and how does, how does this work? And how do you steer? And, you know, and, and just the things that like an average person who just has no knowledge of aviation was asking. And then I'd ask about her trips and where she'd go and what she'd do. And, you know, do you fly with a new person every single time? And what if you don't like the person? And, you know, and what if you have, have you had an emergency? What kind of emergency have you had? How did you handle it? How did your, how did your first officer handle it? I mean, just, you know, a barrage of questions. Yeah. Of lady. She was, she was so gracious in answering all my questions. And I mean, she became my mentor really, because even when I was starting to study at, for and prepare for um, regional airline interviews. She would sit with me for hours and just go over the gouges with me, and uh, you know, make sure I understood everything. And but but to backtrack, uh, so she encouraged me to go do a discovery flight. I was totally hooked, loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, the only problem is my job as a claims adjuster at the time took me all over the country because I was a on the disaster team. 
So I would be gone for eight, nine months at a time. So when I come home, I'd have to cram and do as much flight training as I could because I didn't know when I was going to be leaving again. Uh, Then finally, I realized that this is what I wanted to do for a living. So I took a different job within the company um, where I was home all the time. Uh, but the flight training was so expensive. So I wound up getting uh, a second job at the airport working for the uh, flight school. So I got not only a discount on my flight training, but I also had a second income to start paying, help pay for my flight lessons. Because didn't you have to take a pay cut when you changed that job, change jobs at the insurance company? I did. So I took a pay cut. It was, it wasn't a, I mean, it was, it was a substantial pay cut, but the the salary that I was still living on was very livable salary. So it was an adjustment, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, wow, okay, now I have to eat macaroni and cheese kind of adjustment. Um, so I continued to do my flight training and I saved up all my vacation time and, and took a class and got my CFI and CFII. And I figured it's now or never. So I made sure all my debt was paid off and made the leap to making $12,000 a year as a flight instructor. <laughs> That's when the macaroni and cheese kicked in. Um, I actually, my, my best friend who is like a sister to me said, listen, I want to help you out as much as I can. You know, she was married with children, but she and her husband ran a restaurant. She's like, you know, we're gone in the evening. Why don't you come stay at our house and in exchange for room and board, you can sleep on a mattress in my in my office. And I'm like, okay. Hmm. So that's what I did. Slept on a mattress in her office at nighttime, took care of her little ones, um, flew all day long, and just worked my little butt off to like gain some hours, really. So what were you instructing in most often? Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, I got my ratings on a Piper, on a PA-28, um, but I started instructing in a Cessna 172. So it was a bit of adjustment, uh, you know, and here I am supposed to be the expert. And I'm like, oh, gosh, how am I going to land this thing properly without looking like an idiot? Um, but actually, you know what? I grew to love that plane. That that 172 was amazing. And then we flew the 152 and then we flew the 172 RG and then we had the 182. Um, yeah. I mean, what what great planes. So stable, you know, I mean, because, you know, as a flight instructor, someone's always trying to kill you. So it's just nice to have a good, stable plane. <laughs> I never know? thought of it that way. Oh, yeah. Rob, yeah, was the, that, the moment, that your experience you as well, Rob? Um, well, I, I think that once you get, when you pass your uh, your first CFI ride, they, they uh, remind you before you take the first student out, just remember, this person's going to try to kill you. <laughs> uh, and... It, it, it's not it's not deliberate, obviously. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the things that students do close to the ground uh, means you have to be whoa, whoa. I mean, your hands Just and be your ready. feet need to fly sometimes um, in order to save the uh, to save the flight. Uh, but uh, no, seriously, we all know it's CFIing is uh, is a part of growing up, uh, and and of course. We're we're bringing along the next generation of pilots, but what something I was going to ask you, Tammy, is what airport did you train at in Miami? Uh, so I trained actually at a Fort Lauderdale Executive International. Oh, I got gotcha. you. And then I got my CFI training out of Pompano, and then I instructed out of Tamiami and Opalaka. Oh my goodness, yeah. Opalaka! Yeah. I used to work. I used to work there many years ago. Great uh, airport. 
uh, yeah, when the traffic count was a little higher. Uh, but, uh, uh, but one other thing I, I wanted to mention, some of our listeners may not have understood what you meant when you said uh, uh, the uh, Southwest uh, pilot and you studied the gouge. What what's the tell us what the gouge is? OK, I'm sorry about that. So anytime you go for an airline interview, there is. Uh, there's a publication, be it either a book or a message or forum, that those who have interviewed before you will um, let you know what questions were asked. And it, it has more to do with the technical portion, like, you know, make sure you, you know the – you know, uh, what was it? The Teterboro and, you know, and, and they try and catch you on, on, on this approach plate. So, uh, people would pass down information and that's how you basically studied for your interview is by, you know, listening or reading to whatever someone else who just did the interview had. The other thing that I, I find fascinating and, and many of our listeners, you know, who are very involved in aviation will know this, but some that, you know, may, may be new to may not realize this is that here you are, uh, that you've, you've just gotten your pilot's license, you got your commercial, you got your CFI, you're very, very low hours. And what are you doing? You're training others. The least experienced pilots are the ones that are training new pilots. And I think that's a, a, a fascinating way of, of training that doesn't happen in hardly any other profession. You know, it sounds scary, Micah, but I, I have to tell you, you're probably the most knowledgeable right after you finished all your ratings because all that information is still in your head. If I had to go back and teach now, I'd have to do some studying because some of those, like, just trying to explain some of those principles, you know, without fumbling or making it so much harder than it, than it needed to be, um, was chal- is challenging. So I think because it was still fresh in my head, just newly being trained, I think I was a better probably instructor because of it. Hmm. Interesting. Your far aim is way behind you now. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, everything's electronic now, so. So, Tammy, how long were you flight instructing? So I was flight instructing for um, about almost two years. Um, during that time at Opelaka, I was really lucky. I met uh, someone who flew a Cessna 402. He ran a charter company. He would go over to the islands a lot. Uh, so he hired me as a part-time um, pilot just to help him and also to kind of train me to start taking over the routes more more than I was. And that allowed me to get my multi-engine time. Um, so I got... My multi-engine time built up. I got my uh, total time built up, and I was lucky enough to be hired for a regional airline about two, almost two and a half years after I started flight instructing. And this was around the time you were getting married, was it? So I was hired by this regional airline in December of 2006. And I asked them if they wouldn't mind if I started January of 2007 because I had already had I had already had plans to get married and go on my honeymoon. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. No problem. So pretty much as soon as I got back from my honeymoon, I went straight, moved about 2,000 miles away from my new husband and um, trained for pretty much three months straight. Now, was he supportive of your uh, journey here in this career? Always. He's always been very supportive. I mean, and, and this is someone that I knew when I was in my early 20s. So... He knew that how hard I had worked and he knew how, what a struggle it was. And he knew that this was something I really wanted. So he always supported me. He, you know, I told him I wasn't interested in commuting for the regional airline. So he said, well, you just tell me and we'll, we'll pack up and move. So yeah, he's been amazing. I'm very lucky. Max, what, what did you expect 
the poor lady to say? <laughs> well, I knew. I knew the answer. No, I, I, I know, but uh, no, actually, he never supported me at all. And so I threw we him split in the up river nine and, months later. Uh, Listen, if that was the case, I would totally tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there are a few divorces in yeah. the aviation industry. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Is he in aviation or no? He is not. He okay, is not, so thank goodness. Yeah, which makes which makes life easier because a um, we don't talk about work all the time, mm. and b um, I have someone that's stable on the ground that's not in this you know roller coaster because as we know, airline life it's either great or it sucks. So we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. I guess I should say. <laughs> So I can't believe that you gave up a promising career as a claims adjuster for a major insurance company <laughs> to go fly airplanes. You know, I must say, I the insurance company I worked for, it was, it was a great job. I really enjoyed it. I made a lot of good friends. But, you know, when you realize that there's just something that you want to do with your life and you have the opportunity to do it, then you have to go for it. I think, you know, because I started in my mid twenties, you know, I was lucky enough that I I wasn't married or had kids at the time, because if that was the case, I would never have been able to pursue this. You know, I was single and it was just, it was, it was a sacrifice, but it was only my sacrifice. No one else had a sacrifice for me too. So that made life easier for me. So what were you flying in the in the regionals and how long were you in the regionals? Because then you had another amazing opportunity that doesn't often happen. So I was flying a CRJ. So I went from um I went from a Cessna 182 to uh, a regional jet, which was just phenomenal. This regional airline, I, you know what, I, I have no problem saying it. I flew for Comair. Um the re- the training that I got at Comair was the most amazing training I've ever got. They were so thorough. It was a straight three straight months of just nonstop training. Um, I flew the CRJ 200, the CRJ 700 and the CRJ 900 and, um, had a great time. I went on maternity leave in the middle of November of 2009. And unfortunately by the time I was ready to come back in November of 2009, I was furloughed. Um, that's when, yeah, that's when things started happening. Um, and just, I mean, it was right after the 08 crash, I guess you could call it. Um, probably not the best terminology for this podcast, but, (laughs) but, um, recession, yes, recession. Thank you. Uh, so in 2009, I I was furloughed, um, which, you know, I mean, I was really sad, but it kind of worked out well because I got to stay home with my son for a couple of years. So, you know, it worked out. And you weren't the only one in the family that lost no. their job. <laughs> so unfortunately, um, at, you know, my husband had a great paying job. He's like, listen, it's fine. Stay home. We'll, we'll make it work. It's not a big deal. And then after the baby was born, he got laid off. Too. <laughs> oh. So it was, you know what? I, it was back to the days of uh, flight instructing. I was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cinch our belts. We, we, we only had one car, which was fine. We didn't spend gas because neither of us had to drive anywhere because neither of us had a job. Um, our we lived we never lived beyond our means, so our mortgage was low. Um, you know, he got unemployment, which is nice. So at least there was some income. But I had always saved up, so I had a good we had a good nest egg. So we just you know lived off of that. And you know, and, and a newborn where they can be expensive, they're you know 
Really, they're not. It's just diapers and formula. And other than that, you know, now he's 13 and he costs me so yeah, much they, money. They so. get more expensive <laughs> later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was great. So I stayed home with them for about two years. And then um, through the women in aviation, who I'm really, uh, I really was really active with in my local chapter, she, uh, one of the president at the time told me about a job out of my local airport flying uh, for a company for uh, like a small family that owned a, owned a Pilatus. And, um, it was pretty much a part-time job, which was great. And it, it didn't make me a lot of money, but it got me back in the cockpit and I'm very grateful for it. How was that Pilatus to fly? It was, it, you know, it's funny. I always say if I won the lottery, I get my G6, but you know, that Pilatus, that is a great plane. I mean, just reliable, go, get, you know, sh- short field takeoffs, short field landings, gets in anywhere, you know, comfortable. I, I yeah, I, I wish I could afford a Pilatus. And you could put his and hers uh, Harleys in the back. I I guess I don't know. The, I <laughs> we fl- we flew the wealthy family around, so you know, when they needed their Harleys taken, we took them. But other than that, no, they, it was it was a great job, great family, um, very you know, not your typical rich family. They were always on time, very courteous, very polite. So that was that was just that was a godsend. And then unfortunately in 2016 they were getting ready to sell the plane. So I thought this is a good time that I needed to start thinking about my career anyway and you know, I mean I'm getting older and flying this plane is great but it's not doing anything for my aviation life. Uh, so I started looking into uh, a major airline, and I, I worked pretty aggressively and pretty hard for it. And I got an interview, and and I got hired. Um, unfortunately, I got hired in May, but the training didn't start till October. So I was like, "Well, I have to do something." So I wound so, up. So before you get into that, so when you said that, you, I'm sorry, when you said that, you know, you worked really hard and aggressively to land that job. What does that mean? What did you have to do? So this this particular airline, um, people had posted on the forums that they had been waiting like a year or two for an invitation. Um, so I found out through several friends that worked there and through the forums um, who the head of the training department was. And I would call him, talk to him. I offered to fly out to meet him for coffee. I asked him if he thought I was a good candidate. Um, I was the, let's see, I think the Women in Aviation Conference was in Nashville that year. I happened to be in Miami on vacation and I took a plane, flew out from my vacation, went up to meet him in in Nashville that day. And unfortunately he got stuck on a conference call, so I didn't even get to meet him. Um, But I told him, you know, he he apologized profusely. And I said, listen, what do I need to do? I mean, I called him every week. I'm pretty sure he was this close to probably blocking my number. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I, you know, I, I wanted the job and I made sure I had every I dotted and T crossed on my resume, everything the company wanted, I made sure I had. And luckily it was like they, they're big philanthropies, philanthropic company. So I luckily had done a lot of uh, philanthropic stuff anyway. So it just looked really good on my resume. Um, I had people not only write me letters of recommendation, but good friends or family that worked at the company called him on my behalf. So I, yeah, I, I was the wolf, man. I wanted it. And, um, yeah, within like four or five months I got, I got an interview and I got the job, which at the time was, was impressive. But you know, when you want something, you go for it. Right. Exactly. 
And so you did get it, but mm-hmm. there was a uh, you were waiting for the date to start. Correct. So in the meantime, I, I you know I thought, what's the best way to stay current and get a paycheck? And uh, you know, so I looked for a regional airline that that flew out of my local air uh, airport. They also flew the RJs, which I was extremely familiar with. So I went to work for them for the summer. Um, met a great group of people. And I realized why I don't like regional airline life. So <laughs> it made me appreciate going to the major even more once once I was done with my little stint at the regional airline again. Was there a big difference between the, the first, Com Air, the first regional you worked for, and, and the second one in terms of how it was run? Or was, was it a different kind of um, culture involved? Or was it just you didn't care for the whole regional thing? No, it was it was a different culture. It was a different culture. And to be honest with you, Mike, I mean not not that I never gave a hundred percent, but in the back of my head I knew it was temporary for me. So whereas if I knew I was gonna be there long term, I would have gotten way more involved and probably gotten to know a lot more people. You know what, but I just wanted to do my job and go home because I knew at the end of the day I was gonna be somewhere else in a few months. So I I can't say that I necessarily uh gave it as much attention as I probably should have as far as trying to get more involved in the, in the environment. Yeah. And you knew it was going to be temporary before yes, exactly. uh, stepping into the major. And so uh, what aircraft did you start with in the ma- at the major? I flew a 737, um, started out in there. And I, I think, you know what, I think that is a great plane for everybody to start out when you go to a major airline, because you know, it's funny. I was so excited to move up to this narrow body airplane um, and I realized the RJ was way more technically sophisticated than, than the <laughs> 737. I'm looking at this plane and these panels going, nah, really? Is this just a simulator? Are you, are you guys really messing with me? They're like, no, no, this is really how it is. Um, but you know what? It, it was a great plane to fly. You kind of really feel like you're flying again because you have to work. It's not, a, it's not necessarily an easy plane. Um, and then being the fact that we have three different models of the 737, both very significantly with takeoff and landing speeds and pitch angles and handling. Um, it was, it was, it was a workhorse, which is why people wonder why I don't, I'm not ready to upgrade on, on that plane because I hold the seniority for it, but I'm very happy in my cushy wide body, <laughs> my yeah. wide body couch that I sit on. <laughs> you like that triple seven. I love the triple seven. Ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted to fly that plane. That plane specifically. That plane specifically, and and uh, even now, everybody would you know let me say, "Oh, you're gonna this, you're gonna go to the seven eight seven? I'm like, "No, I'm I've always wanted to fly this plane. I'm very happy here. So this is where I'll be for a little while. So why the triple seven as opposed to something else? You know, I remember when the plane came out in the '90s. My dad and I, we always, my dad and I always like were very interested in airplanes. And you know, I, I think it was probably him always talking to me about stuff. He's kind of a uh, aviation or airplane historian as well. He knows everything about everything about every different plane. And so we taught. We're like, oh my god! I, in the '90s, look at this amazing plane. Look what it does. Look how big it is. Look how far it goes. Like, look at just like the. It can take off. It can land by itself. What you know? And that was it. It was just my dream. Ever since then, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm. I, this is what I want to fly. So I feel like I have made it. But now, could you? If I don't know if your seniority will take it, but could could you upgrade to yet to the left seat of a of seven eight if you wanted to? No, uh, this triple seven and seven eight are pretty senior. 
Uh, but I would say within the next five years, we've, we have so much movement and so much retirement. I don't, I, that's definitely a possibility. So, which when you consider coming to a major airline and flying a wide body, knowing that I can upgrade in, in probably five years, is just craziness, you know? And, and if they, uh, if, uh, they have their way, you could fly until you're 67. Can you imagine that? You know, <laughs> if I feel great, I will absolutely do it, but. But if, you know, if I know that 65 is the time that I'm going or before then, then then that's what I'll do. Are you doing uh, international or, or domestic? Or? I do primarily international. So, yeah, mostly right now because um, Asia is still pretty much closed to U.S. carriers. Uh, I do mostly Europe nowadays. But I got on the plane because I wanted to do international. I want to do Asia. And, um, I've done India. I've done Tel Aviv. Uh, so just amazing places, just getting to see the world on someone else's dime, you know? Yeah, but still, how many times can you see Paris or London or <laughs> or Madrid? Oh, yawn. What amazes me, and, and Brian and I were talking about it uh, on the Journey as a Reward the other day, is that uh, the, uh, the, the airline doesn't really fly wide bodies domestically, even on transcontinental routes. It's rare that you find a wide body that, that, that flies transcontinentally. I was fortunate to fly a 777 from EWR to SFO when I flew the last time, and it was great, and I, I love the airplane. But uh, but it's very rare to find a transcontinental wide body any longer uh, on that particular airline. Well, we we have a, a particular a particular triple seven model that has come back into service that is primarily only going to be used for domestic. So hopefully, you'll see a lot more of those routes on a triple seven going back and forth on transcons. Tammy, I was going to ask you, and I'm glad we got to the point where I, I can. You know, we are, uh, as a podcast, we do our best to support the whole Women in Aviation program. And one of the things that, that you said that I just thought was wonderful and really somewhat rare is that when you were growing up, you had an opportunity to speak with a woman pilot and, and be motivated and, and mentored by her. And now you're a part of the Women in Aviation organization, which is an incredible organization. And I'm wondering how you go about bringing that back to more women in aviation because there just aren't as many as there should be and it's not particularly fair. So I, you know what, I feel like I've had so many people help me and I feel like it's my duty to pay it forward. So I mentor as many people as I can. I actually did the mentor program with the 99s. Uh, I'm actually mentoring someone in the um, Aviation Women's Aerospace Association. Um, I mentor people from my local chapter um, and basically, even on uh, the forums, the you know our, our company forums, I, we have a particular forum just for the women aviators. And a lot of times, people will ask for help or assistance. And you know, I, I I'm happy to help because really, it's just a phone call or a, a vote of confidence every now and then that people just need the push and they just need you know these girls need to know they can do it. They can do it if they want to do it. If this is something they want to do, it's available to them. You know, um, and I, I'm happy. I'm happy to to mentor anybody I can. Do you uh, ever see yourself trying to be based down in uh, in Miami? No, I don't think I'll be moving back there, Rob. Um, it's too crowded and it's too expensive. <laughs> I'm happy with where I live. I don't enjoy commuting. But to live in a, a base for a major airline is usually it means it's a major city and it's expensive. So. You know, my, my son's a, a, a teenager and he's 
firmly entrenched in his school. So I, for now, this is, I, I can't imagine moving. What does he think about his mom being a uh, airline pilot? You know, he's, he's such a layback kid. And I've asked him if, you know, not, not that I ask him, but every once in a while, you know, I used to do a lot of volunteer work when I was available to at his school. And I, I mean, I, I would hear him say like, yeah, my mom's a pilot. Like, it, you know, just, it, it just, he just grew up with it. So yeah, I don't know if he thinks it's cool or not. I mean, just like, I guess like actors, children's are like, they don't know what their parents do or when they do it, they're like, whatever. Yeah, so I don't yeah. know if he thinks it's cool or not. He just knows that he gets his PS5 when he wants it. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I, I love the way she said, oh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can identify with that. Does your son have any interest in being a pilot himself? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. And that and that's fine. I would never push it on him. If he was interested, yeah. I would encourage him, but he doesn't show any interest in it, and that's fine by me. It's a it's a hard life. It's a hard I mean it's I, I think like the road is not as hard now as it was when I was going through, but it's still a hard life in the sense that you're away from your family. And if that's not something he wants to do that i you know i hey i i'm not here to tell him what to do i'm just here to support him whatever he decides he wants to do do you, do you think he wants to be a claims adjuster <laughs> i don't think so oh, well you okay. know he's never heard me talk positively about it so. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh, tammy it, it really is an amazing story at least i think it's an amazing story of uh, having a goal and getting through tough times, getting through great times and, and making it happen. But if, if you were going to sum it all up in one word, is, is there one that kind of describes, I mean, is it persistence? Is it tenacity? Are those the same? Is it um, goal driven? I mean, how do you, how do you see yourself? That's two how do you words. Yeah, that is two. Okay. I'll give you two words if you want. Okay. You know, I would say passion and perseverance. You know, if there's something you love figure out a way to do it. You do what it takes and it's going to mean sacrifice, but that's the way life is. Just anybody that wants to do it, just just keep pushing. Well, Tammy, I'm really glad that you were able to come on the show and tell our listeners your story. Uh, it, I know it, it's kind of a motivating story, I think, in many ways, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So we really appreciate it. I have enjoyed being on here. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. What's up with the geeks? Mr. Vanderhoof, how's, uh, how's things at the museum? Um, reality TV is very interesting. We actually have had, since Sunday, and it will be all week long, the Pawn Stars from Pawn Stars Television um, are filming in our museum. In fact, some of my exhibits are being used as backdrops for the stars. But yeah, it's definitely um, different than what you would expect. There's a lot behind the scenes that you don't really expect. Um, Sunday was basically loading in day, and we spent a lot of time moving things. The museum developed palm trees and palm trees are very interesting because they're used to block things that the cam they don't want the cameras to see. The other part that I've learned is high definition television sees everything. 
they actually had someone spending um, quite a few t- quite a few hours outside on Sunday, uh, scraping the concrete and removing the grass from from the concrete cracks because it was showing up too much on high definition cameras. Mm. So if you if you're not familiar with Pawn Stars, it, they have a a Pawn Star store in Las Vegas. Well, now they're taking this on the road like if anyone's seen the old PBS show, Antique Road Show. They have people coming in, bringing in their stuff to sell. They then have experts review the items before they even make the television screen. Then there are separate photo shoots and interviews. So I'm going to be dealing with this until they leave on Sunday, uh, uh, we're recording this on Monday night, so it'll be the following Sunday. Every morning I have to be COVID tested, but it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I can't say that I'm a fan of it, but I, I will say that I will be really interested to see what the final product is and having known what's gone on behind the scenes um, it's going to definitely change my perspective on um, what is reality, quote, television, unquote. This will probably come out in the distant future. I don't know what the lead time is for these kind of things. The last I had heard, it'll be about six months. Okay. So are these people bringing aviation-oriented stuff or is it just stuff in general and you guys just happen to be the sort of the studio that they picked to shoot this. We are a very inexpensive soundstage for southeastern Pennsylvania. They are trying to get some items that are specific to aviation, but there are other ones, people bringing books, bringing comic books. One of the people brought what I thought was very, very interesting, and, and I had a chuckle in the back of my mind, was... One of the gentlemen brought his prized collection of Franklin Mint gas pump pocket knives. Now, <laughs> why is that funny to me? Because I was help on the design team when I worked at Franklin Mint for them, their pocket knives. I know the amount of money they cost to make. I know where they were made. I, you know, and... I was very it was very humorous to see that this valuable collectible was going to be shown up on Pawn Stars when I knew that it was less than fifty dollars worth of merchandise. And just to clarify for those that may not speak English as a first language, we are talking about pawn as in pawnbrokers, P A W N, and not another word that might be associated with that or mispronounced. You'd have to be pretty out of it to mispronounce the, I mean, to, to confuse the name with something else, don't you think, guys? I thought you were confused when David <laughs> was talking about this before we started. Yeah. Will we see you in an episode? Uh, I'm hoping not. I've worked very well, <laughs> worked, worked very hard to stay out of cameras. Oh, gosh, you got, you got to do it once. You got to do like a little, uh, you know, cameo or something. All right. Uh, Brian let us know that Cranky Dorkfest is coming up, and Brett Snyder uh, has uh, an article, uh, a post up on Cranky Flyer. That we'll, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Cranky Dorkfest is September 17th this year, 2022. 
But this this is put on every year. This is at the park across the street from the In and Out at LAX, and uh, quite a few notable people show up at this event. Geeky people, geeky people, past um, airplane geeks hosts and founders have showed up. Um, also, sometimes uh, some executives. So it's uh, it, it's a great uh, it's a great event. Brian says that, uh, unfortunately, he'll be in Singapore this year on another flight for The Journey is the Reward, so he's going to miss it. So if you want to learn more about that, September 17th, 2022, have a link in the show notes to the Cranky Flyer post about it. All right, Micah, anything going on with you uh, aviation-wise? Well, kind of a, a little thing. It's important to me, and that is that this Friday, August 26th, is going to be the 53rd anniversary of the first time I ever flew. And uh, that's when I flew with my grandfather from uh, a Delta Pan Am DC-8 from JFK down to MSY. That's New Orleans. And uh, it was just a, a fabulous time. I, I, I still remember it very, very well to this day. And uh, if you're interested in what that was all like, it was also the uh, the first story I ever wrote and recorded for the Airplane Geeks. And you can hear all about it on episode 238. Very good. And uh, Rob, anything from you? Uh, just a simple one. Uh, this Wednesday at uh, Executive Airport in Chicago, uh, we're having uh, Tom Turner, who is the uh, executive director of the American Bonanza Society's uh, Air Safety Foundation, as our guest speaker talking on safety topics. We've had Tom on the show back in, uh, well, back when he, years ago. Uh, but uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got an awful lot of people signed up. Uh, if you get this, so this will be Wednesday morning. You can still sign up and come tonight. <laughs> okay. So get on it. All right, we've got a recorded interview. Micah was fortunate enough to speak with an MV-22 pilot. Uh, Micah, do you need to set this up? I think uh, the intro explains it all, and maybe I'll say a couple of things afterwards. I told you I was fickle. Yep, the PBY is my favorite aircraft. Nope, it's really the DC-3. Wrong again, it's the B-17. Uh-oh. My mistake, it's a 707. Well, not today. Not any of those. My new favorite is the MV-22 Osprey. What an amazing bird. From August 2nd through August 8th, VMMT-204, Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Training Squadron 204, the Raptors, came to Maine from New River, North Carolina, to hang out and perform training operations. But I like to think that they came for my birthday. And what a terrific birthday present it was. I had never seen an MV-22 Osprey in the flesh before. But now that I've gotten to see them fly, climb right through one, and even get on the flight deck in the cockpit, well, it's my new favorite. The Raptors' hospitality was unprecedented. They were very kind and made themselves more available than I ever anticipated. And I can't thank them enough. I had a chance to interview Marine pilot in training on the MV-22, Lieutenant Rachel Hardinger. She was gracious, knowledgeable, and a wonderful host and tour guide, taking me out on the tarmac to talk about the Osprey not once, but twice. She's a proud member of the United States Marine Corps, and I am proud just to be able to say that I've met her. Let's hear what she had to say. So we're talking with uh, First Lieutenant Rachel Hardinger from uh, the United States Marine Corps, and you are in training to be a MV-22 pilot. 
tell us a little bit about how you ended up with the MV-22. Uh, right. Well, uh, Marine Corps aviators started out their training um, via, well, they go to Pensacola first, and then you have to go through, well, I think they're calling it Knife now, but I went through API. Um, and then after that, you either go to Corpus Christi, Texas, or you go to Milton, Florida for primary training, and that takes roughly six months. You fly the T-6 Bravo there, um, and then at the end of that, you'll be selected to your track, whether that be jets, tilt rotor, helicopters, or the uh, C-130s. So, uh, well, I wound up on the tilt rotor because I think that it will actually be uh, the aircraft that will end up in actual combat situations. That was one of the primary reasons why I chose it, as well as um, having that crew atmosphere and the community. That's a big factor for me and for a lot of people when they're coming up on their selection boards. But even then at selection boards, you don't really know what you're going to get, and it depends a lot on your grades and who was around you that time. Um, but I'm very thankful, especially coming into the tilt community. It's been a blast. Um, but yeah, completed primary and then went on to intermediate flight training, which was on the TH-57, um, the Bravo and the Charlie model, model in Milton, Florida. And that took me about 12 weeks. And then I went to back to Corpus Christi, Texas for advanced training on the T-44, uh, the King Air to get some uh, multi-engine training. At the end of that six months, I earned my wings at that point, so I was a full aviator, supposedly. <laughs> um, but then I came to uh, New River, North Carolina, where we uh, trained to become a T2P, a tilt rotor secondary pilot. Um, and then from there, I'll move on to uh, Miramar in San Diego, California. Well, to be a Marine is something very special in and of itself. To be a Marine aviator is even more special and very distinctive. How did you end up joining the Marines? Where did you come from, and, and how did you end up into the aviation area? Um, well, I might have a more unique story than a lot of the aviators because a lot of folks will come through uh, either the Naval Academy or maybe ROTC um, right out of college. I graduated college back in 2012, and uh, after that I was trying to be a biologist, possibly, maybe become a physician assistant. Um, that didn't work out too well for me. I ended up going uh, and living in New Zealand for about a year. When I returned, I needed to do something. Uh, went to the World War II Museum, got inspired back into uh, my patriotism and just thinking maybe I should look into joining the military. Um, and at that time I was 27. I uh, talked to all of the services and found out, you know, the Marine Corps needed pilots, or actually everybody needed pilots at that time. I think they still are heavy on that, every service is. But I was too old for everybody else, but the Marine Corps would take me. Um, but also, I do feel like it's where I belong. I was always a tomboy when I was a little girl, and uh, been a lot of fun and got to do a lot of fun things, uh, pretending I was a grunt running around in uh, Virginia during uh, officer candidate school and the basic school, which is TBS. So the MV-22 is really unique in so many different ways. The question I always had, because, you know, it's a helicopter and it's a fixed-wing aircraft and, and, and it's amazing. The question I always had is transferring. When you're going, when, when you're moving those nacelles up or down, how does that work and how do you keep yourself from falling out of the sky? 
Yes, it's a pretty delicate balance um, when uh, you can actually see that out here today um, as we start to rotate the nacelles forward. Um, we're having to add in power. So just like in a helicopter initially, um, we'll start adding power and kind of maintaining, keeping ourselves uh, in translational lift till we get enough speed that we're to make, get to translational lift, which is about 40 knots for us. Um, and then at that point, we'll start really taking off. We don't have to use as much power. Um, and once we we do start rotating the cells slightly forward, but we're still keeping them fairly vertical. Because if you can think about how a helicopter usually takes off, it'll put, point the nose slightly forward in order to start moving forward. We do that with just the nacelles moving forward. And then as soon as we have enough forward speed, um, about 40 knots, when we hit that translational lift, we'll lower the nacelles down to about 60 degrees. And then uh, once we get cleared fast, um, we're allowed to bring the nacelles all the way down to zero. Um, and that basically turns us into the airplane. So you're really translating your lift from the rotors to the wing when you're going in that direction. Uh, yes, I'd say yes, absolutely. And when you're coming out of it, that's the part that kind of scares me just to think about, that when you're flying as an aircraft, as an airplane, and you're flying straight ahead and you start translating back, how do you end up translating a lift again from the wing to the rotors? Do you go into a dive to maintain, um, not a dive, but, but a downward uh, kind of uh, position so that you, uh, you maintain the lift on the wing with the speed and then pick it up on the rotors? I, that, that's the part that really confuses me. I mean, in a sense, yes, um, and we get taught all kinds of diagrams of when the classic airplane control surfaces are more effective. So past 40 knots, you're really starting to rely more on uh, your ailerons. We call them flapperons because we have to have all kinds of different names for the Osprey, and then we have our elevator um, and the uh, rudder, which don't really become useful until about 40 knots and forward, or they're starting to become more and more effective. Um, at the same time, it's the same thing coming back, um, that your prop rotors, our prop rotors, are becoming more and more effective um, as we start rotating the cells backwards. That's changing the uh, lift vector backwards, and you're starting to really become a helicopter at that point. Um, and the nose of the airplane, we really have to try to keep that thing down. That actually can be a bit of a challenge, uh, especially it's been a challenge for me coming through um, and trying to keep that nose down as we are rotating the nacelles backwards. How do your controls do change? Because you're both, I mean, you're trained both as a fixed-wing pilot and a helicopter pilot. How do the controls, as you're using them in on, when you're on the flight deck, change from a... Uh, collective and a cyclic to a uh, throttle and a uh, and a yoke. We have a thrust control level lever or a TCL. Um, so, let's say we're off deck and we just want to uh, go forward, or if we want to just lift off the deck, we're going to act exactly how a helicopter would, as far as increasing the collective, if you will, or the TCL. Um, we would push that forward, which is a little bit different from the helicopter where you're pulling back. Um, so 
just like a helicopter, you're pushing forward um, to increase the power, and that's going to increase that lift vector, the power coming through that lift vector, um, and then you'll raise up into this into the sky, like just like a helicopter. Um, and then once you are an airplane, um, and we have those prop rotors all the way forward, it's uh, going to be the same thing as you think of as a, with an airplane. You're increasing the power. You're going to increase your speed. Um, and then if you want to climb, you're going to have to raise the nose. So, um, which makes this aircraft complicated to fly, or at least I feel that's been the complicated part, is thinking in, there, there'll be times where I have to say, I'm an airplane right now, or I'm a helicopter right now. I shouldn't be bringing the power back and raising the nose like I usually do when I come to land in an airplane, maybe to slow down and just flare. You don't do that in the Osprey. I need to pretend I'm a, or not pretend, you know, act as if I am a helicopter. Well, maybe raise the nose, keep the power in to slow myself down, but then using the TCL or like the collective to then have my, uh, to then descend. One more semi-technical question, and, and that is, there's always been a lot of talk about the uh, the difficulties with the Osprey. There's been some trouble in development. There's been trouble here and there. I know that there's a – if you have an engine failure, there's a cross shaft so that you can actually operate both rot- prop rotors from one engine. Can you tell me a little bit about your emergency procedures for, for those kinds of events? Because I think people – are interested in it, but are often, and I don't mean to frighten anyone uh, or upset anyone, but are afraid to ask those questions. Uh, right. Well, and uh, I think also of note, um, we aren't terribly more dangerous uh, compared to the rest of the aircraft and all of the military. I think up until, I think, maybe the last crash most recently, we were the safest aircraft in all of aviation, uh, military aviation anyways. Um, but we do, and, and coming into it, I didn't really know a whole lot, a whole lot either. Um, we had friends that would make jokes as we were coming in to fly the MV-22 for the first time. Um, but after learning a lot of the different systems, like you were talking about the uh, inter- interconnecting drive shaft that we have, where if one engine... Uh, flames out for some reason or dies, then we have a way for the other engine to power both sides so both prop rotors are working. Um, And then also on top of that, there's a lot of our systems, the hydraulic systems, for example, that are triple redundant. There's a lot that goes into, they did a lot of, uh, built a lot of safety into our aircraft. based off of uh, everything that had occurred and interconnecting drive shaft is a perfect example of that where they knew they needed to have a way to power the other engine otherwise this thing would fall like a rock if you have just one engine powering especially if you're a helicopter if you can imagine that um, where you have one rotor that would just uh, flip you over Um, so as far as safety goes I think there's every reason to believe that this is a safe aircraft, um, even in light of the recent uh, crashes. So basically what you're saying is that, like any aircraft, 
The MV-22 had some teething problems growing up, but it's something that the American public and everybody should be comfortable and confident in because it's a, a, an aircraft that was designed to do something special, and it does it special, and it does it well. Absolutely. So there are five aircraft up here, five MV-22s up here on training. It looks like you've got a mixed crew of Marines and, and Air Force. Don't ask me how they get along, and I'm not sure who else is here. Tell me a little bit about the group and, and what brings you here. Uh, right. So uh, right now, the Fleet Re- Replacement Squadron at, at uh, MCAS New River is the only squadron that's uh, teaching the initial training, at least, for all of the Air Force, the Navy, and uh, the Marine Corps, obviously, for the Marine Corps. Um, so the uh, Air Force are going to move on to the CV-22 and the... Navy, I think they're also sticking with the MV-22 version. I'm not quite sure which, uh, but eventually they'll have their own replacement, uh, fleet replacement squadron of some kind in California. Um, but yeah, that actually has been a real neat part about a lot of my aviation career because mostly the uh, Navy mostly trained me um, out in uh, Pensacola, Corpus Christi, and Milton has mainly been Navy folks, uh, but we'll also get a few Air Force through that as well uh, via exchange programs. Um, and this is it's just kind of a, a fun way to interconnect the other military services together, see how other people do things. And how long have you been up here and how much longer? So we've been up here since August 2nd and we'll be here till August 8th. And is Maine treating you well? Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. And I love that it cools down a little bit <laughs> down in uh, New River. It's uh, staying till about 85 degrees, and it's a bit too humid for me. Lieutenant Hardinger, thank you so much for joining us here on the Airplane Geeks. And more importantly, thank you very much for your service. Of course. Thank you for your support. We always need the community. Wow, she's cool. She was great, and that whole group was so incredibly gracious. I, uh, you know, uh, they they were stationed. Uh, they were at Mac Jets at the uh, FBO that that you visited, Max, and yes. uh, and you know, I know the people there. They've been very, very kind to me, and I've got to thank them so much. They let me know they were coming. Uh, the manager of uh, of Mac Jets let me know they were going to be there that week. I showed up on a Wednesday, walked in, and uh, captain of the group, Captain Christopher Morales, was there. I asked if I could, you know, go out and speak with someone. He said, "Well, not today. It's a little busy, but." Come back tomorrow sometime between 1 and 2, and I'll make sure that somebody talks to you. And I came back that next day and uh, met Lieutenant Hardinger, and uh, she went and found Captain Morales, and I guess he assigned her to me. And she couldn't have been more gracious and more kind. Ernie Eaton, who is our helicopter pilot friend up here, uh, came by. I invited him, and he came in and, and sat in for the interview and walked out on the flight deck with us. And uh, it was just a uh, – I, I can't thank them enough for how kind they were. Uh, that was on uh, on a Thursday. The following Monday, everybody was supposed to leave. There was one MV-22 that had, uh, had a little bit of work needed to be done on it. And the wings were folded up and the propellers were folded. And I had never seen one like that before again in person. And I walked into Mac Jets after I saw it there and asked if somebody could walk me out on the tarmac. And the manager was kind enough to find someone and walk me out and get some more pictures. So again, I can't thank them enough, both the uh, the Raptors and uh, Squadron 204 and, and, and Matt Jets Air Group. Thank you so much. It was a great time. What do they sound like? They are loud. That's what I thought. They are loud. When they were running, I, uh, I put earplugs in my ears. They, they, were, they were that loud. Not as loud as a C-17, but certainly very, very loud, but 
beautiful to watch. And there are some photos that I don't know which ones we'll be able to put up on uh, on the show notes, but there are some photos that uh, that I took, including one of uh, of Lieutenant Hardinger in, in the left-hand seat. And uh, you, she, you could tell how happy she was. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Thanks for capturing that, Micah. I enjoyed that. It was good. We have a number of interviews. We have more to come from Hillel, from Oshkosh. One in particular that I think uh, we'll have next episode is uh, is very interesting. This is a conversation with the uh, aerial coordinator who worked on Top Gun Maverick and a number of other kind of major blockbuster films. And Hillel had a really, really fascinating conversation with him. So we'll, uh, we'll look for that next week. Meanwhile, we'd uh, like to thank all of you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We love doing this every week, and when we hear from you, it's almost always positive, and you love listening as well, so that makes us very happy. We want to thank our guest, Tammy Weta-Hoyer, a really uh, a great lady, uh, really uh, passionate about aviation, really driven, and so it was uh, really uh, a fun pleasure to hear her story. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. As always, we have a permanent shortcut link that redirects straight to the show notes for the episode, and that's airplanegeeks.com slash 713. And you can always reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So let's close it out. And David Vanderhoof, anything uh, anything more you'd like to say? Well, you can always check out Max and I on that other show, the UAV Digest. Been a lot of interesting stories, especially the whole eVertol market. I know we haven't been covering a lot of it here, but Max and I do try to at least touch a base on it a lot on the other show. And of course, you can find me on social media if you know how to spell Vanderhoof. And last but not least, you can always find me on our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to geeks at theairplanegeeks.com. And Max or I will send you a link to join the club. Terrific. And how about you, Rob Mark? Well, they can find Scott and I both at uh, jetwine.com where we uh, are writing about, you know, things here and there. Uh, and uh, also uh, me in the uh, pages uh, of uh, business and commercial aviation up on the Avweek site and, uh, you know, slumming in the streets sometimes at night when I should be home. But that that's a whole other story we won't go into this week. So uh, any uh, interesting recent articles that you've uh, penned for our friends at Aviation Week? Uh, oh, I just sent them uh, something that appeared uh, last week or the week before about uh, uh, the the top 10 things that drive controllers, air traffic controllers crazy uh, about pilots. Uh, and it was actually it was actually nicely put. It wasn't meant to be uh, critical of, of pilots, but. Uh, it was kind of a wish list by controllers, and uh, uh, it, it, I guess it did pretty well. Um, I mean, I guess. So, so, can, so can you see both sides of the both sides of the argument? No, <laughs> no. I, I'm a pilot. I, I'm a pilot first. I don't have to see both sides. Uh, I just want my way. <laughs> I, you know, you know, what could make an interesting article. Rob might be the top ten things that drive. Um, air traffic controllers crazy about other air traffic controllers. Uh, 
I could probably tell you what some of those are. But <laughs> that that might not be uh, that might not be uh, suitable that, for print. Yeah, because yeah, remember the audience are are people that are flyers and air traffic. I'm sorry, uh, aviation department managers and. I don't know if they would care about that, but I might be wrong. I'll, I'll run it up the flagpole. All right. And uh, Micah, our main man, Micah, what would you like to uh, close with? Well, if you want to hear more of my crazy ramblings along with Brian, you can tune into the Journey is a Reward podcast. And uh, we just released episode 17 about Brian's stealth trip to Tampa. He didn't think he was going to be going to Tampa before he goes to Hawaii tomorrow, but he did. He took a weekend trip to Tampa. And you can always find me on uh, on Twitter, and the ID there is at MainFly. That's Maine like the state, M-A-I-N-E, Fly, F-L-Y, at MainFly. I know how that series ends. Yeah. I mean, the last, the last episode, Mike is going to say, so, Brian, what do you think? Has it has it really been worth it? And Brian's going to say, well, you know, honest to God, I thought it would be when I started this. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to give it away. So, yeah, episode 17 just dropped today. I see it in my uh, Pocket Casts app. The previous episode, 16, was, uh, was a great episode. You guys are doing uh, pretty well. I mean, uh, I may have to retire from this soon, then you guys can take this over. What oh, do please don't. Please don't. Absolutely not. <laughs> Brian tempted. keeps saying, I never knew how much work Max did. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but it's a great – you guys are doing a really wonderful job. It's really, really a good uh, podcast. It's yeah, fun thanks. too. So I encourage everybody to check that out. And you can find me at 30,000feet.com. Nothing fancy, just a simple little page. lists all the places where I hang out. I also have an aviation podcast directory there with oh, – I don't know how many. I counted them once, but I don't remember. A great many aviation podcasts. You can waste a lot of time – wading through those if you like and we'll ask that you please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the airplane geeks podcast bye everybody nighty night see y'all soon keep the blue side up and thanks for listening